three, two, one. Welcome back to the Politipop Podcast, the podcast where we take your favorite pop culture media and discuss the social and political themes within. I'm your host, Mike Booch, coming off of a long hiatus to bring you our special trilogy. That's right. We have three podcasts coming up, including this one on class. And today's episode is going to revolve around um, our first of three movies involving class. And this first one is Parasite. And with me, is going to be uh, my, my, my closest friend, one of my favorite co-hosts to have, the very knowledgeable and super woke, Tyler C. How's it going, Ty? Uh, doing, I'm doing really well, man. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. I'm, it's, the least, it's the least I could do. I'm glad that, that this is something you really wanted to record, so we were finally able to, to get the Politipop podcast back off of its, off of its hiatus. Um, and I mean, now I have the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people do. So yeah, it is a good time to do it. And I think uh, class, class struggle and, and class conversations are really big right now. So there's not a better time to talk about a film like Parasite. Now, tell me a little bit about Parasite. Uh, it was best film of the year, am I correct? Or Yeah, it won the Academy Award. Um, it actually won four Academy Awards. So it won, Get out of here. Yeah, yeah, it won Best Picture, okay. uh, Best Original Screenplay, Best Director, and Best International Film. I don't think a lot of people expected to take all those awards. Definitely International Film, but taking Best Picture was, uh, was kind of unheard of. I don't think anyone expected that. But the film is incredible. I mean, if, if anyone hasn't seen it, I highly recommend it. Um, it takes a lot of turns you don't expect. Um, you know, the, the film basically deals with a very poor family who's trying to get by, and they tend to cheat the system. They try to cheat people who have more money than them and try to get money to survive. And, and, uh, and that being said, spoilers for the rest of this podcast. If you have not seen Parasite and don't want it spoiled, do not listen to this podcast yet. First, watch it. It's definitely worth it. Um, rent it. Buy it if it's available. Uh, but, but now is the time to be talking about it, like you said, because if you weren't able to relate to this family beforehand, you're probably going to be able to relate to them now, if not in, in another month or so. It's definitely a film, the less you know going in, the better. Oh, yeah. I uh, I did not expect all of the turns that it took. But like I told you afterwards uh, in private, I said for a Korean film to, to make the mainstream, it has to be fucked up. <laughs> yeah. You know, when like when you think about it, uh, old boy. That's that was my first introduction to Korean cinema. And that was, you know, kind of a cult classic because it's so fucked up. And um, and Snowpiercer, which is going to be the third movie that we discuss on this podcast, is I'm not going to say it's a Korean film, but it has a lot of it has because it has a lot of American actors and it's in English. But it's directed by Bong Joon-ho, just like uh, Parasite is. And um, and there there are, it's a huge, diverse cast. Yeah, I, I mean, if anyone hasn't seen Bong Joon-ho's films, he really has uh, some great stuff. A lot of commentary on, uh, he, kind of like George Romero, actually, like a lot of social commentary in his films. Uh, he's done Okja, The Host, Snowpiercer. 
I mean, he's he's done some different stuff, but you walk away definitely remembering his films and the messages behind them. Uh, I think he's a fantastic director. I'm glad he's being recognized for his work. Yeah, I'd say it's about damn time, even though I am one of the people who is very new to this, but but I'm on board for it. And the reason why now is a good time to talk about that, uh, we're going to be covering three different films. This first one, like I said, is Parasite. The second one is going to be a Netflix original film called The Platform. It is a Spanish film. And the third film is going to be Snowpiercer, another Bong Joon-ho joint. And uh, each film and each podcast is probably going to get a little bit more radical. And it's funny because... The podcast first came about, the Politipop podcast first came about after Donald Trump was elected in 2016. I was like, you know what? I got to do something. I got to say something. I got to let my voice be heard. And I think like a lot of people uh, politically and socially, after a certain amount of time, that voice just kind of dies down. It gets stifled and you kind of just fall into the normalcy of everything. Yeah, I think you just need to get your feelings out there, whether anyone actually listens or not. You know, I, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I know you started this podcast. I'd been on it, I think, just once before. Um, but over the last you know, year or, or two, uh, you know, I, I've started to become much more interested in politics, um, the, the things going on in our country. And, you know, I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to tell people about it. And, you know, you start by maybe sharing, like, memes and things on Facebook or, or you know, Twitter. And, uh, you know, you try to get some stuff out there to your friends. But, you know, a lot of the people you need to reach aren't the ones that are listening. Uh, and, and it's frustrating. It's really tough to, to feel that way. So, you know, I know we started talking and, and then watching a film like Parasite, you can't help but, but just want to just talk about it and, and dissect it and, and, and get your own thoughts about it out there. Well, yeah, and I I found myself becoming a little uh, complacent with the way things were. Obviously, I do not like the Trump administration or anything that they're doing. Uh, but at a certain point, like you said, you're not talking to to anybody who's who who needs to listen. You're talking to people who are already listening. Uh, but in case people aren't aware, uh, the world has been struck by a new virus, uh, a new coronavirus known as COVID-19. They're working on treatments. They're hopefully working on vaccines. I don't know. Uh, But but it it has quite the death toll already. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's all over the news, all over any sort of media. Uh, But in case you find this uh, Generation Omega after the apocalypse, just know that this is what happened uh, after our entire civilization dies out and we're taken by uh, artificial intelligence uh, (laughs) well the most frustrating thing about this virus isn't you know obviously it's it sucks you know people are dying they're sick it's scary but it's i think the way it was mishandled uh especially it's continued to be mishandled oh yeah it it still it still is yeah in the usa in particular we are just really bungling this whole thing um, you know, that starts from the top with Donald Trump and his administration. But, you know, people are, are, are trying to make heroes out of, you know, Governor Cuomo and, and other politicians who are doing the bare minimum to, to make sure people don't die. And we could be doing so, so much more. Uh, and we should have done so much more. Yeah. So that brings us to a state right now where there are, I want to say, 6.6 million people who have applied for unemployment because they've been furloughed or laid off or lost their jobs or just can't work. I'm one of those people who just cannot work right now. Uh, So a lot of people are now discovering um, just how rough things are for those who are are unemployed. 
You know, I think a lot of folks, especially the middle class and upper class, they would think, oh, well, people who are on unemployment or homeless people, they're mooching off the system and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, hey, you're now put in a situation where it is impossible for you to work. It's definitely interesting. It's almost like the great equalizer in some ways. You know, a Absolutely. lot of people are now in the same position, no matter, uh, you know, rich or poor, everyone you're forced to stay indoors, or if you, you know, you do still work, you're considered an essential worker, you know, which is also incredibly scary. Um, you know, you're, it, it's just an, it's an interesting place for everyone to be. Um, and, and as you see, there's so many, so many, so much fallout from this more than just people getting sick. Like you said, jobs being lost, businesses closing, um, you know, not being able to see friends and family and celebrate birthdays. And, you know, we have Easter coming up, which is basically canceled. Uh, St. Patrick's Day was basically canceled. You know, there's so many ramifications from this. Um, and, you know, and, and the government's plan was a stimulus package, which will give Americans <laughs> uh, $1,200. One shot of $1,200. And if you make one? over... Oh, my God. Yep, one shot. And if you make over 75000 it goes down a little bit, you know. And that, that's that's really it. They're, they're bailing out major corporations uh the cruise industry is getting bailed out and the cruise industry will often uh say they're not from let's say the united states so they don't have to pay the same taxes they'll say they're from another country but they're still getting bailed out by the government i mean this is a multi i don't remember the exact number i think it's like two point something trillion dollars that is being spent and americans are walking away with twelve hundred dollars or less one time and that's enough to maybe cover maybe rent if that Maybe. for a person, you know, depending where you are, you know, New York State, you, that does not cover your rent. My fiance uh, and I pay seventeen hundred dollars a month. Yep, plus there you go. Utilities and Ex other bills. Exactly, exactly, and, and you know that's the best they could come up with. And you know, uh, this is not just Republicans; this is Democrats too. That you know, they they rejected the original stimulus package, and this is the best they could come up with. This is the best that they could come up with around the world. They are uh, freezing rent, mortgage payments. Um, electric, gas, all of those things, and paying their, their citizens for the wages lost. I believe uh, the UK is paying 80% of wages lost. Um, I know Italy froze everything for mortgages and rent down. Um, I think Canada is paying 2000 a month to its citizens. And the best we could do was a one-time $1,200 deal. And, and the, gov the government has not gotten the country on the same page. I mean, there are some states, like, like us here in New York, who are on, you know, a sort of lockdown. I think California Sort is, of. Sort of, yeah. I mean, there's still people going about their day. Um, yeah. I, you know, and then there's so many states that aren't even doing that. It's like, how can we get ahead and of this? Yeah, and then there's others that are, that it, it's it's not called a stay-in-home order, but it, it's something to that effect, right? Um, you know, where, like, they're like, all right, you have to stay home. New York is kind of gray on that area. Like you said, the essential workers... You know, they they're still working, but, you know, the f folks like me, it's like encouraged to stay in, but it's not 100 percent mandatory. And I'm not saying I want it to be. That goes into a police state. That's a whole absolutely, other thing. Absolutely. But but the the big mask off moment here is that we're now seeing that the government cares more about the economy and more about profits and corporations than they do about people. Yeah, they're willing to let people die, especially our, our elderly citizens who are most at risk here. They will let them die for the economy. They have basically said that in so many words, you know, and I think because Donald Trump hasn't taken it seriously enough, there are so many people who aren't. I mean, I, you know, I'm considered an essential worker. I work in a grocery store and the amount of people that, you know, come shopping is insane. Like we have, we have to line them up outside. We're only allowing about 25, 30 people into the building. And I've seen people come in every day 
or they come in for I saw a guy walk out with popcorn. The and, same and, people. Yeah, the same people. They come every day. Uh, I saw a guy walk out with popcorn and orange juice. I mean, they're not taking it seriously. If you're going to go grocery shopping, and listen, if you need food, you need food. Do a big shopping. Get what you need for at least the week and stay home. You know, these, these people are not getting that. And, and you can see that. I can see it almost every day. Well, yeah. And uh, it was an interview on Fox News. Uh, Republican uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, he's a 69-year-old Republican. He told Fox News host Tucker Carlson, uh, he said, let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. And those of us who are 70 plus will take care of ourselves. Don't sacrifice the country. Don't do that. Um, so he's saying uh, that that they that old people are more than willing to risk their own lives and die for the economy. Later on, he says, you know, Tucker, no one reached out to me and said, as a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all American loves for your children and grandchildren? And, and he said, if that's the exchange, I'm all in. So, so this guy, who I'm assuming is a pretty privileged guy, uh, is not the only person who shares this sentiment. And I know that for a fact. And he's saying, you know what, let's just let the, you know, let's let the economy prosper and let human lives uh, go to waste. I mean, there's so much to dissect there. First of all, you know, someone like him, like you said, is probably a privileged, you know, human being who doesn't need to put himself in danger, even though he's saying that. Uh, I'm sure he could have somebody shop for him. He probably has a pretty nice home. You know, know, you're seeing uh, like even celebrities around the world being like, oh man, I'm cooped up at home. I'm just like you guys. Listen, living in in your giant mansion with, you know, a a farm behind your house that you can explore (laughs) is not the same as being stuck in a one bedroom apartment or, you know, like a a tiny house and you have animals, you know, whatever it is, like it's, it's, it's not the same. And we're also seeing in this country a lot of young people are dying, which they, they were not expecting. I mean, they I've were seen not. people their 20s. I, saw, I think there was an 18-year-old teenager who died a few weeks ago. Uh, people in their 30s, 40s. Like, this is not just killing people in their 70s and 80s. It's killing everybody. Yeah, and like you said, that's what makes it the great equalizer. And so now is the time to be talking about class because it isn't, it, you know, it isn't just about, you know, wor- uh, world health and public health. It is, but clearly... I think Selena Kyle said it best in uh, The Dark Knight Rises when, she, uh, when, when Bruce went bankrupt. Everything has to come back to Batman with me. You know how it is. Um, Bruce went bankrupt and he said, oh, they're letting me keep the house. And she said, not even the rich go broke the same as the rest of us. And that's, and that's clearly it. You know, I, I am worried. My paid time off is about to run out this week. And then I become one of those people who are applying for unemployment. It's a scary time. It's a scary time for everybody. Yeah, we ordered a DoorDash last night. And, you know, you and I have done DoorDash. But, like, this was, like, a a mother of, like, two kids. Like, she didn't bring her kids with her, but you just get a read, you know? And, like, like, she was, you know, she was a bit of an older... You know, middle-aged woman, and and you know she was really nice and everything. But I'm like, yo, you wouldn't be door dashing right now if you didn't have to. Yeah, I mean, I, funny enough, thing. I got DoorDash yesterday too, and they're offering like a no contact thing where they just leave it on the doorstep, and it's it's just so weird to me. You know, as like you said, we did DoorDash, and like you know, I'm used to like that cu- that interaction. You know, and yeah. now it's just like they just drop it in your doorstep, and you just wait, and then you look outside, well, you're like, oh, it's here. <laughs> I felt weird about that one because you know that. Um, if you tip on the app, DoorDash uh, will keep some of that. 
Well, they're saying they're giving 100% now. They have. Oh, updated. now they are. They're, they're oh, claiming now. And that, yeah, you know, in a time of crisis, they're giving 100% <laughs> of their tip to uh, to their employees. That's insane. Because they would do messed up stuff. Uh, like, like you know, if you've ever DoorDash, they guarantee you $11 on this thing. Now, let's say a person tips you like $5 through the app. That means DoorDash only pays you 6 Yep. And that you get eleven dollars all in all, which which is just, it's ridiculous. So I made sure I gave her cash, um, and I asked her if she was okay with you know me handing her the cash, and she was cool with it. But still, it's a whole thing. So that's why we're talking about class because because all of us are suffering, and and now the faults of of our capitalist overlords and our government are being brought to light, and it's showing that they really don't care about the people and the, and the lower class, especially the lower class, but even the people who are middle class and consider themselves to be in an okay spot, you know, they're, they're also getting screwed right now. So let's start at the beginning of the film. Like you said, uh, we have an impoverished family in Korea, and mind you, I did not plan on relating to this film so much as I figured there would be a little bit of uh, dissonance between cultures, right? Yeah, absolutely. I related to this 110%. <laughs> you know, people are people, you know, no matter where. So, so we have this, this family of four, right? A mother, a father, and, uh, and two children who are around, what, college age probably? Maybe yeah, I think 20s. they said they're around that age, yep. Yeah, let's say they're early 20s. And, uh, and of course, like, it starts off with them losing the free Wi-Fi above their apartment. And you're like, okay, why is that a big deal? Don't you have your own Wi-Fi? No. They don't have their own Wi-Fi. They don't even have their phones on, which is why they're using the Wi-Fi uh, above their apartment. And of course the mother turns to the father and she says, what's your plan? And that, that, that kind of resonated with me because, you know, growing up, so I grew up, uh, first living with a single mother and then living with a single father in that order. Um, we were never the people who, who had an awful lot of money. And just so you know, I'm going to be going back and forth to my childhood a lot with this. And, um, if you can bring up stuff as it comes up also, uh, I think I think that would be great because there's a lot of desperate stuff they do, and there's a lot of desperate stuff we had to do to survive growing up too. Absolutely, yeah. We you know we've been in situations like that, especially with parents who don't know how to how to get the money to put food on the table and, and keep a roof over your head. So they kind of cheat the system a little bit or do what they got to do to survive. So we it's definitely relatable. Absolutely. And it seems like they're freeloaders, right? It seems like, okay, they're using somebody else's Wi-Fi, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it, you, hear, you find out that the mom wants them to use their phones to get Wi-Fi so they can use WhatsApp because she's waiting to hear from a job. Yep. And, and yep. that's something a lot of people don't think of, right? You see a homeless person on the street, you go, listen, why don't you get a job? But the very concept of getting a job costs money, right? Can a homeless person, like, you know, New York City, homeless person walk into a job interview dressed the way they're dressed? No, absolutely not. There's, there's no chance of that. Yeah, so you have to, so you have to pay for good, you have to pay, uh, you know, solid money to get presentable clothes, okay? And then you have to be able to apply for a job. So you need either the internet, like they are trying to get, or you need to transportation to apply for one. So if you don't have a car, you need to pay money to use public transportation to go to a physical place. Yeah, I mean, Parasite does a really good job of, of showing a situation like that. You know, it's it's kind of a it's a very funny film. It's darkly funny. You know, it, they kind of have that. Fun. It like, starts off pretty funny, and then yeah, they it had like that montage where they're trying to fold pizza boxes. You know, and they're like they're practicing. They're like watching like videos to try and get it right. And you're like, well, you know, what's going on with this? And it turns out that they're selling the boxes to a pizza company. And because some of the boxes aren't perfect, they decide the doctor to pay. I think it was ten percent. You know, which doesn't seem like a lot, but when you have no income. And that is 
huge, right? And it all yeah. leads to the son trying to get a job working for uh, the pizza company where he's telling, oh, listen, you got that one guy working there. You should fire him. He's not good at his job. Me, like, I'm ready. Like, I'm young. I'm smart. Like, I can help you out. Like, I'll be great. You know, and it's like they're so desperate for a job, you know, and this is the situation, I guess, of the people around them that he's even trying to get someone fired to take the job. And, and he's and, a real opportunist. Sorry to cut you off, but he's a real opportunist, which is what you have to be when it comes to gig work in the gig economy, you know? Yep. Yep. And, uh, and you know, this this also spoke to me because, you know, oh, they have to use WhatsApp because their phones are shut off. You remember back in the day when I was using Google Voice because all I have was that flip phone? <laughs> yeah, I had like that's right. Three or four different phone numbers that I would text people from. And, uh, and this whole idea of being an opportunist. When I left my full time over a year ago to become an actor, I was doing Uber, Lyft, DoorDash. And at some point I was giving an Uber ride to this guy who owned a DJ business. And in speaking with him, that's how I became a DJ. Like I got a whole new skill and a whole new uh, uh, job from just being an opportunist and being able to jump on everything that comes my way. Yeah, you kind of had to sell yourself to, to other people to, to get the job you wanted, right? Like you had to kind of like claw for that. Exactly, because you never know like where, you know, where your next meal's coming from. You never know where your next job's coming from. Um, and so, so this right here, and this reminds me of, you know, back when I lived with you at what? Oh, I would come over to your place all the time when we were kids. But like, you know, when I moved in with you at like 16 years old, this really, uh, this, this really resonated, spoke to me. I yeah. keep using these words over and over again, but, um, <laughs> but when they finally do get some money from the, from the pizza boxes, they're eating junk food and drinking beer. And you got to wonder, oh, why is that? And it turns out it's because that's really all they can afford. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's a there's a simple pleasure to those kind of things. You know, I remember as a kid, um, my dad kind of left. He was out of the picture. My mom was a single mom who had lost her job. It was right after 9-11. Uh, and the economy was not great. It was very difficult for her to get a job, especially she had a lot of mental problems at the time. And, you know, uh, I remember we would get like like a tax refund, you know. And, like, you'd get, I don't know, $1,000 or whatever they would give you for, for like, having kids and stuff. And it was like, oh man, we got this money. We're going, we're gonna get food. You know, we're gonna rent the movie. Like she'd buy like a video game for me and my brother. It was like this big thing. And like, you know, they say you should save your money. You know, especially when you're when you don't have a lot of money. But it's so hard because you've struggled for so long. Whether it's months, weeks, a year, and when you finally get that money, you just want a little bit of happiness. So you go and you spend it. So you know, seeing the family like kind of like celebrating like that. Definitely understand it. I, you know, I think I, I still do that to this day. You know, you get a little bit of money, you're like, I got to get something nice. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, there are people who say like, oh, like you said, you should save because you don't have anything. But at a certain extent, is $500 or $300. That's going to be the difference between me getting a house right now. Yeah. I mean, like, is, is, that, is that a life worth living? You know, like if you have to struggle your entire life just so you one day have enough savings to to not have to struggle. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know if that's worth living because do, do you want to be tortured for, for 30 years to live out your last 25 or whatever it wants? I don't know. You know, it's a, it's a hard one to answer. Well, um, I'd say no, it's not, it's not <laughs> yeah. worth living. Uh, you know, and then there's, you know, it also reminded me like, cause when I came over to hang out with you on a weekend or whatever, your mom, you know, she was working at least one job, single mom, busting her ass to take care of two kids and then three when I was living with you guys. And what would dinner be? It would be fucking McDonald's. Yeah. Yep. You know, it would be pizza because try working a full day 
and then making a meal for like four people. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, I mean, my, it's my mom lot, would be but... working. She'd be driving to pick us up from school, you know, drop us off. Like, you know, the whole thing. You, you got to go shopping, this and that. Like, no one else is helping her with errands. No one was doing laundry for her, you know. Like, she had to do all this stuff on her own. Who wants to go home and cook a meal at that point? You know what I mean? Exactly. So, like, you go and you buy something quick and easy. And, that, and that's how they always get you. And another thing that struck me here was, you know, we're thinking, oh, why don't they buy food that they can cook? Their phones aren't even on. Do they have gas? Do they have electric? Can they cook? That stuff doesn't, doesn't really occur to you until you're in it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I think there's some interesting things about the family too. Um, you know, obviously they, they are poor. They, they don't have a lot of resources, but they are smart. You know, the kids are really, really intelligent. Absolutely. And they, I think, I don't know if they specifically say it, but they almost mentioned like, could have done really well in college, you know, or really well in school, but they just didn't have the resources to go. And it, it's a shame because you, you almost wonder what could these kids have grown up to become if they had the same opportunities as people with more money around them. Well, and that, so that is, that is the idea. And I think you're right. They bring it up a couple of times. Oh, you would have been great in college. Uh, you know, you, you, you should have gotten, you're smarter than my college friends. Yep. That's, you know, that's what uh, Kevin's, Kevin's friend keeps saying to him. And that brings me to this article that I found on Forbes, which confirms that the price of college tuition has been increasing almost eight times faster than wages have been. Wow. So it's wow. like, yeah, you have, yeah, you have this natural talent. You, you have uh, an, an inclination toward academia, and yet it doesn't matter because you're never going to have the opportunity to go to college in the first place. That's unbelievable. And even if you do, I mean, I don't know, you know how Korea is with it, but I know here in the United States, if you, if you manage to go to college and you can get some student loans, it can cripple you for the rest of your life. So, yeah, you got that education. You got to do it. You found a way. And now you're paying off this huge debt that never seems to go any lower because you can never make the payments high enough to really get rid of that interest. And you're stuck in that for almost, I don't know, the rest of your life, if not another half of your life. Did you know that student loans now make up the largest chunk of U.S. non-housing debt? That's unbelievable. I did not. No idea. No. So that means... More than both credit cards or auto loans. Wow. You know, a lot of baby boomers uh, and Gen Xers even, they remember working their way through college and graduating with little to no debt. Uh, but, you know, that's virtually impossible for the current crop of students and recent graduates, you and myself included. Yeah, you, you, there's no way. You just don't make enough money compared to what your student loans or student debt would be. You know, it's not the same. It, like you said, you read the numbers. It, it has changed. You know, it, it, and anytime, uh, you know, it, for example, a politician brings up the idea of, hey, let's, let's make um, college affordable. Let's, let's try to get rid of some of the student debt. It's so heavily debated and fought against. It just it just never seems to happen. And there are people who who commit suicide over this, whose lives are just ruined mm -hmm. from from the stress of like, how am I ever going to get out of this debt? Did I tell you about the cookie woman? No. OK, so. Spoke to this woman uh, a couple months ago, you know, really, really nice woman. Uh, and she was talking about uh, college debt. And she was saying that she feels like the current young generation is the gimme, gimme generation, that everybody wants to give stuff to them, that they want free college. And she's like, well, why should I have to pay for college and they're not going to have to pay for college? I told her a couple of things. One thing I said was, I'm not the kind of person that if I had to suffer in some way, I want other people to suffer the same way. 
that's just not hardwired into me. And I know that it is for a lot of people. When I was studying martial arts, which was a huge part of my life, there would be people who would do terrible things on a belt test to other students and to myself included. I was the the third black belt to test at my dojo. Um, they would do terrible things because that's what was done to them. But that wasn't something I ever felt like I had to pass on because I remembered how much I hated it. I would never want to do that to somebody else. But also, I started talking to her about uh, cookies. I said, if, there, if there's a guy who has 10 cookies and he gives you one cookie and somebody else wants half of that cookie, why are you mad at the person who wants half of your one instead of the guy who now has nine cookies left? That, I mean, that's, that's the problem with, I think, with m most countries, you know, uh, definitely our country. People, they just don't understand. You know, it's that, that argument that, you know, immigrants are stealing from us or taking our resources or taking our jobs. But the billionaires, the 1%, are hogging the majority of this stuff and no one seems to connect it to. Well, yeah. And, the you know, you'll hear about, uh, you know, when the ICE raids were happening and they were going into factories and and uh, arresting all of these undocumented immigrants for working there illegally. What about the guy that hired them? Yeah, that it's not illegal to hire undocumented workers, but it's illegal to be an undocumented. Uh, apparently, it, it just yeah. doesn't make any sense. You know, why are you mad at that guy when you're not mad at the person hiring them? I'm sorry. They're, they're not they're not paying their taxes. Right. That's a big one. You know, they're not ta tax paying Americans. We hear, you know. Jeff Bezos does not pay taxes for Amazon. <laughs> he is a billionaire, and he does not have to pay taxes. But let's go after you know this this guy who's trying to support his family, who who ran from maybe a situation where his life and his kids' lives were in danger. But let you know, let's blame them. Let's point to them. And really, how many resources are they taking away from you? You blame the most vulnerable people. Exactly. I will say in all my time, and I've, I've, I've interacted with a lot of immigrants and a lot of undocumented immigrants in my time. I lived with a house full of day laborers when I was 15 years old. I worked for a, a Chinese restaurant for three years straight. And, you know, the way that the, my boss came in, he came from China to Mexico, came in through Mexico, and then married his wife who is also a Chinese immigrant, but she had been a citizen by then, married her, and that's how he got his citizenship. And, uh, and it, they all loved this country. They all loved the opportunity, blah, 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 patriotism and stuff. But the only immigrant who've I, who I've seen who has means and still chooses to mooch off the system is my father. He came here <laughs> from the Dominican Republic at 11 years old and... Uh, you know, all throughout my childhood, even when he did have good jobs, would still find ways to game the system. Even when we weren't living together, you know, I had moved out under 18 years old. I had moved out. He would still be like, all right, I need you to come with me to the Department of Social Services so I can say you live with me and get more food stamps. Even up to the time of my mother's death, he would still take her money while she was in the hospital, take her food stamps, use all of that. And I'm not talking about like using it for food and stuff because I've seen his bank statements. He would use, you know, buying new TVs, uh, buying uh, uh, hundreds of dollars of, of uh, upgrades for Marvel Contest of Champions from the Apple store. Um, <laughs> I mean, he would get know, cigarettes, is, drugs, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cigarettes, drugs and stuff like that. Um, you know, but so so... so but that's it, right? It's it's uh, Schrodinger's immigrant, the one who doesn't work at all yet still steals jobs. That's the, there's always gonna. The, I mean, no, yeah, one, yeah. not everyone's perfect, right? Like, there's not the argument that every immigrant that comes here is going to be a great person. 
mean, that's just silly. I mean, <laughs> every person that lives here isn't a great person, <laughs> exactly. Right? You know, like, but do, do they make up the majority? I I don't believe so. I really don't. Definitely I think the not. most most are decent people who are just trying to find a uh, you know a new place to live, a better place to live. Like you said, a lot of them are you know they love this country, they love the opportunities. Like you know, my girlfriend's parents or her whole family pretty much are immigrants, and they they really love it here. You know, they they tell they talk about what they experienced growing up and you know the crime and, and the poverty and you know it's a, it's scary i understand why they would want to go somewhere they would feel safer even if they have to work three jobs just to get by well yeah because even then if you still have half a room in a house in you know Huntington station that's still you know a a roof over your head and you don't have to worry about you know the gangs coming to collect you know protection money or whatever um so, yeah, I don't know exactly how we got there, but I'm glad that we did. <laughs> We're back to the movie. The first person we see really show this initiative is the son, Kevin, right? Yep. He ends up talking to his friend who who gets him a tutoring job with this really, really rich family. He gives this job to Kevin because he says, you know what? Your English is great. You're, you know, you're smart. You're not going to hit on this girl like I know all of my college bros will you know, do the right thing and, and make some money for your family. So they end up forging his degree to get a job. Because once, like we said, if you don't have enough money to go to college, you're not going to be able to go. And then you can't get a good job. And it's it's like, you know, he's never given a chance in the first yeah, place. He has the skills to do the same job, if not better, but will never get that opportunity just because he, he doesn't have that piece of paper saying he went to college. And now when we see him get introduced to this family, it's amazing the turn he takes. Just putting on a different set of clothes and washing his face, he looks like a completely different person. He's really a social chameleon that way. Yeah, he really sells himself in a, in a new way, you know, and, and is able to take on this job and, and be pretty good at it. Because you kind of, you got to be a chameleon, you know what I mean? And when you're going from job to job or for me, job to job, house to house, whatever, you have to be able to fit in. But then he manages to bring in his own sister as an art tutor for his student's younger brother. Well, it's all about opportunity, right? Like he sees an opportunity pop up and he says, hey, I can get my sister in here and now we'll have two incomes for this family. You know, like he realizes that this, this you know, this rich family that he's working for that he can kind of take a little advantage of them. You know, they're not picking up on, on the schemes. They're, they're easily fooled. And he's like, you know, let's do what we can here. Let me get my sister through the door. We, we see how poverty has, has transformed these people, right? How su having to survive has transformed them. Kevin is more of the chameleon. He'll fit in where he needs to. Uh, his sister, Jessica, she is very fierce. She has this, this amazing amount of confidence that people will just bow to. Yeah, I mean, she she basically makes things up to make her job work. You know, she she she's really good at, at fooling things. She she's the one that I think that forged his uh, his his college um, diploma in the first place. And and what she does is she she researches you know art and psychology, and, and she makes up this whole bullshit argument for why uh, this young kid is is making his art, and you know there's all this suffering in there. And working through trauma exactly and yeah. just like completely fools the mother brings her to tears and you know and afterwards she's like yeah, I, I don't know i made it up oh and it was so perfect and this is over a conversation that they're having um when they're well, this is during dinner when they just had a conversation about all the different jobs that their father has had and once again that's my life, right? That my father has worked so many, and your mother has worked so many different she jobs has. too, right? Yeah, she's worked in quite a few different kinds of places. 
Yeah, and and it's it's weird because like no two are the same. Like my father's been a taxi driver, but then he was also actually I guess they are the same. He was a bus driver. <laughs> he was a driver for for Coca Cola. <laughs> um, not a driver. You know, he's worked in an office, like uh, worked in an office, worked in the service industry as as a caterer, or a waiter, like like everything. And they were and because because that's just the the deal. Sometimes it's tough to work at the same place for thirty something years. And even when you do, I mean, how long have you been working? You've been working in groceries since you were, I want to say, 17 years old. Am yeah, I wrong? that's correct. 17. I'm 30 now. So, so uh, a long, so long time, man. So that's 13 years. How are your savings, if I can ask that? Uh, not great. <laughs> you know? Right. Not great. <laughs> like, how, how insane is that? You're still living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, no matter how, no matter how much you do work. Well, you know, I worked, I worked through college, uh, you know, and it's like that idea of like, all right, I got an income still, you know, while I'm going to school, but it, the debt just always seems to outweigh how much you make. And again, it's that idea of, you know, when I do have a little bit of money, you want to bring a little happiness to your life. So you're like, no, let's book a vacation. Let's, let's go get that new game. Let's, let's go to dinner. Let's go to the, to the city, you know, whatever it is. It, it's hard. It's really hard to save up. You know, like I said, if you save $300 or whatever, is that going to be the big difference between you getting a house next month or next year? Let's see. According to CNBC, uh, they're talking about how much uh, prices have risen since 1940. In 1940, the median home value in the U.S. was just $2,938. In 1980, it was $47,200. In 2000, it had risen to $119,600. So even adjusted for inflation, the median home price in 1940 would have only been $30,600. Wow. And that's in, and that's in $2,000. And this is uh, collected from the U.S. Census. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. My girlfriend was listening to a podcast for a while. I, I forgot the gentleman's name, but he's he's known for helping like coach people through savings and getting out of debt. That's his whole thing. He has books. He has like his own company. Um, he's I, I I think pretty wealthy now. Um, and, and you know, basically the gist of it is, in order to get out of debt and to save money, you have to live. You have to live miserably. You basically you can never eat out. You have to cook every night. You can't go out. You can't meet people. You can't do anything that's not free for years just to save up and get out of debt. And you know, and like it works. Apparently, it works for a lot of people. But you have to be miserable for so long just to get there. I, I just know. to get to zero. Dollars. Exactly. Not to not to be like, hey, you're gonna be a millionaire. You're no, you're just gonna be out of debt. You're gonna start back at at square one. That brings me to. Uh the next grift in this movie, which is when they get their father to take the place of the driver. Which is which is horrible because they basically get this guy fired. They get this driver fired. They um, they come up with a plan to, to where the daughter is being driven home by him and she leaves her panties in the back seat on the floor so that when he's driving the patriarch of the family the next day or whatever day, uh, he finds it in the back seat. And he's so disgusted by it, by the fact that this driver would do this in his seat, in his car, that he fires him. And what's so interesting about that is that he does say, he's like, well, you know, what's really the issue is if they leave behind panties, maybe the girl wasn't in the right frame of mind. Maybe she was, you know, drunk or, or on drugs or something like that. And he kind of makes it a moral thing. But before that, first and foremost, he says... Does he feel like he's spiting me by dripping his semen into my car seat? Like, that's the thing for him is the ego. How dare my employee strike at my ego 
by using my car to have sex with somebody. Yeah, I mean, they constantly show you, you know, besides the fact that there's a money difference, that that these people just have a different mindset and they, they know they're not equals. You know, like this Absolutely. this rich man believes he in his heart that he is better than these people that work for him, that he is somehow superior. And so long as he pays those people, he has a right to treat them however he treats them. You know, that being said, throughout most of the movie, he doesn't seem like a really bad guy. Well, yeah, I think this whole family, they're really not bad people. I th they're not bad I people. think they're disconnected from reality. They, they don't understand, like, they don't even see these grifts coming because they don't, they don't, it's not even in their mindset to ever do something like this, to ever be in a dis desperate situation because they always have what they need and what they want, you know? And they, like, he has like certain rules for it that, you know, people can never cross, whether it's smelling bad or, you know, just uh, eating too much or like things that he judges, you know, he's always judging them. But at the same time, he's he's not a bad guy. You know, he wants to give them a decent wage, and you know, I you know, he'll pay them a little extra for certain things. And he seems nice enough, and he makes some conversation with them too. Absolutely, right? you know, I think in in their minds, they're good people. They think they're really good people. They're not doing anything wrong. Uh, I mentioned I became a DJ over this past summer, but there was a lot of stuff involved in that. Not just DJing parties, but also working 16-hour days hauling inflatable bouncy houses and dunk tanks all over the place. And, uh, you know, the guy who owns the DJ business, getting involved in a lot of his personal affairs. Um, and it was uh, I developed mild anxiety from working as hard as I had to over the summer. Uh, as many jobs as I could find, not just that one. And when I finally came out to him and told him, hey, like, I went through all of this stuff for you. You can't just treat me however you want to. He goes, well, I paid you for that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. You find yourself doing things that you didn't even think were in your, you know, your job requirements. You know, I think that you see that a lot in the movie, too. You know, he's his driver, but he's not just his driver. He has to carry presents into the house. He has to help, you know, with, with packages and, and this and that. You know, uh, I was grocery shopping with the wife. Exactly. For her. Yep. The, you know, they, they get invited to like family gatherings. You know, they have to do things that they don't expect to be in that job requirement. And there's really, you know, they're not treated any better for it. Absolutely. And an interesting thing he said here. Uh, when the so the father of the family finally gets the job uh, with the patriarch of the rich family and he's driving him and, you know, he's spouting up some bullshit. Oh, you know, I've worked as a driver for this many years, blah, blah, blah. Uh, something my father has also done. This guy is very much like my father, except uh, I don't hate the main character's father of this film. Uh, and um, <laughs> and uh, so the rich guy, he says, I respect those who work in one field for a long time. Yeah, he does say that to him. Yep. And that was so interesting to me. How do you feel about about that? Not that he said it necessarily, but just with that sentiment, because a lot of people hold it. it. You know, it's interesting because, like you said, I've been in the same field for a long time. You know, I've been in the grocery business for 13 years. Um, but I, I and, you know, I, I do an interview. I'm a manager at my job. And that, that is an interesting thing to look at when you see an application, right? And you see somebody who jumped from job to job. It's, it's one of the first questions you ask about. You're like, you know, why, why'd you leave here? Why did you jump around so much? Why didn't you stick with it? And then, but at the same time, right, you see somebody like, especially if they try to get outside of that job, you know, like he's going for another driving job in this movie. But if you try to tr like go outside of your boundaries, your safe zone, you, you try to do something different, it's like, so why do you want to switch careers? You know, you've been, you've been a bank teller for 35 years, now you want to work in a grocery store? You know, so I, I, I don't know how I feel about it. I, I think there, everyone has different opinions on it. I'm not sure where I stand. I think if it works for you, go for yeah. it. But 
I never realized that this was a thing until I, uh, I met my fiance because she comes from a family in which her father, he finally retired, but he's been working as a carpenter, a union carpenter for over 30 years. Her mother has also been working in grocery, actually. Uh, she's you know, a manager at her store, and she's been working there for over 30 years. My fiance has been working in the same field for over nine years, same job, worked her way right from the bottom to, to the top. Um, and yet she was one of the people who just got furloughed yeah. yep. by her job. And it was interesting because uh, when I, I, I change jobs a lot, that's just what I do. Well, you know, I think people look down on, sometimes look down on people who switch jobs because they feel like they don't have their life together. Whereas if you've been uh -huh. in the same job for a long time, like, oh, you've got a career. You know, like, what well, you would never want to give this up. You've got everything figured out. Regardless of what the career even is, right? Exactly. But we're, we're seeing now, right, the people who are willing to change and adapt and change jobs are doing better because they can, hey, I lost this job. I'll jump into working at Taco Bell. I'll go do, uh, you know, DoorDash. I will go work at a grocery store. Like, they'll jump around. They're like, whatever, I'll make it work. Where if you've been in your career your whole time, it's devastating. You know, can you imagine having a job for 30 years and then you lose it? What do you do? What do you, exactly, what do you do? Well, so, so that, that whole thing is interesting to me because at one point she did tell me I just got a new job and she said, you know, it kind of scares me that you're always switching jobs as much as you do. This is your fiance, like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, she was, and I said, why? And she's like, I don't, I don't really know. And I said, I just, in three years' time, I increased my salary by $13,000. That's huge. And was making more than she made at her job after, you know, working there for, it must have been eight years at the time. Or seven years. So, so who's really, you know, no, I don't want to say in the right. I don't think more money equals in the right. But, but which way makes more sense, right? To stay at one place where they'll give you a cent raise every year or, you know, to move at one place saying, all right, I was making this much there. I want 5000 more here. Um, you know, that being said, I ended up miserable at every single uh, salaried position I was working at. But, but still, you get, you get the idea that, you know, it just might not be for some people. Well, you know, I think I, people I'm need to. Person. Sorry to cut you off. I, I think people need to look yeah. more at the companies, not the people. You know, why are you not? That's great. Why are you not being rewarded for your years of loyalty and service? You know, uh, my first grocery job, I started at seven twenty-five. I was there almost uh, about eight years. I walked away at ten twenty-five. You know, and it's like eight years wow. of loyalty and service working. That's not even a dollar a year. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It was not a dollar a year. They, they, it was like 25 cents and then it was like 10 cents or twice a year. It was ridiculous. Um, and that was a unionized job. And that was <clears> what the union got us. That was that was the wage they got us. Uh, and, and it just shows like, why are these companies not taking care of people? You know, and the job I work for right now, I, I really do enjoy it. And I've had so many people, I was hired from without as a manager. And there's a lot of people who were promoted within, they always say, oh, you know, if you get hired off the street, you make more money. You get more money for hired off the street, which is fortunate for me. But why is that? Why is it not equal? Why is the, the guy who worked his way up not getting paid nearly the same amount of money? You know, it, it really makes you wonder, like, why are we judging the people and not the companies that, that hire them? And I want to bring that same idea back up. I mean, we'll bring it up in... Uh definitely in uh, the platform. Yes. We'll bring that up, but I want to bring it up later in this podcast when we find out about the basement. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's some great stuff there. <laughs> uh, so, so that brings us to our next part of the movie, right? 
we have three people from this from this impoverished family working for this rich family, but they're not going to stop there. They're going to get the housekeeper who has been there the longest. They're going to get her fired. And when they do, the mom of the impoverished family, she comes in. And now we see this entire family, they're earning four incomes from this richer family, you know, feeding off of them like a parasite. I just made that connection. Yep. But um, but they, they're all looking nice and cleaned up and they're all dressed very well. And we see that I don't think they're necessarily chameleons. I don't think they're trying to fit in. I just think they're trying to survive. Yeah. And I mean, you know, they're getting this housekeeper fired in the most disgusting way. I mean, they're using her actual physical food allergies against her to make her sick, uh, convince the, the, the wife of the rich family that, um, that she is ill and not safe to be around, you know, and they cost her her job. I, I think, I, I don't know if this, they said this in the movie, I thought they did that. She actually had been the housekeeper there before that family was there, like for the family mm -hmm. beforehand. Like she had been there so long doing this job and she was so good at it. I think the, the rich father says like, oh, she's perfect, you know, she'll clean, she'll do this. My wife can't do any of that. She's useless basically without her, you know. She just eats a little bit too much though, you know, he laughs it off like, huh, you know, she just eats so much food. But other than that, like she's perfect. And they cost her her job, her livelihood for who knows, 20, 30 years it could have been. You know, they've cost two people their job just to steal those jobs because they're so desperate to get that money. And it's like the crabs in a bucket analogy, right? Yes, exactly. It's that, the, you know, the crabs, they're not all going to make it out of the bucket, but they'll be damned if somebody is able to climb over them to get over. So they want to pull each other down so that way they can be the one to survive. They can be the one to make it, right? Yep. So uh, <laughs> that was great because in my notes I actually wrote, is it unethical to escalate this scam? And you answered that without <laughs> even asking it. So that's perfect. Uh, another little thing I noticed, the father, he keeps looking back at the guy while he's driving. Yeah. Which is another thing that mine does all the time and that he would do while he was driving cabs, while he was driving with me in the car, constantly looking back and then like having to swerve when he looks back at the road. Uh, I think it's a, it's a means to kind of make a connection there because if they see you as more of a person and less of an employee, they're probably less inclined to treat you harshly. Yeah, I, I do agree. He, Just a theory. Uh, it makes sense. That definitely makes sense. I like the part where the where the the, the rich man he's like uh, eyes on the road. You know they have like this great conversation. They're really connecting, and then he's like just dismissive all of a sudden out of nowhere. You know like don't forget your place, like eyes on exactly. the road. Exactly. So now we see them all having a dinner in their own place. Did you notice what they were eating? Uh, no, I don't actually. I don't remember. Okay, so when they finally when they have another dinner scene in their apartment again, their basement apartment. They're eating um, food in actual dishes, food that they cook themselves. Right. They're eating, um, I don't want to say ramen, but they're eating like, a, you know, noodle dishes and everything. And what a big difference, right? Now that they have the income to buy something that's not junk food, now that they have the income to buy something that's, you know, a little more expensive and more nutritious for them, they did it. The opportunity was there and they took it to treat themselves better. Yeah, then they start talking about, hey, we can get out of this crappy you know, house or apartment or whatever it is, get someplace better. With all four of our incomes, we're going to make our lives great. You know, like they are, they're all happy and like we're doing this and we're going to get out of our situation. Yeah, and they talk about how great it is that they were able to make this work because the father says, he says, opening for a security guard attracts 500 university graduates. Yep. Which is, which is completely true. Now it's like... To get what would be considered a menial job, you have to be up to such a level that just because of your station in life, wherever you were born, you may not be able to ascend to. So what, what hope do you have getting a menial job 
if you're not even able to get those requirements. Like, you're not given a chance. I mean, I feel like they, they think this is their only opportunity to get ahead, you know, by faking their way into this rich family and, and like you said, being a parasite, like leeching off of them to get money. Yeah, and this was another thing that, that I can relate to in real life because uh, my full time now is, uh, without giving too much information, I work as a one-to-one support staff for a young man with autism. And the way in which I got that job was uh, his former support staff was going on vacation for a couple of weeks. They needed someone to cover. Friend of a friend recommended me to them, and I ended up working with them for those two weeks, and things actually went really, really well. Now, this other guy who was working with him had never been to college, lived in a, in a house um, with, all, he was think, like 32 years old, living with his mom and all of his siblings still. Uh, from what I understand, they also get benefits from the government and they, you know, they get like, I heard all of their food from like Dollar Tree and stuff. Wow. So either they're not doing well or choose not to do well. I don't know. Cause the job he had was pretty well paying. Well, some I people know. like to live out, like they don't, they don't need to live within their me like within their means. I guess they do want to live like, uh, like Bernie Sanders, for example. Right. He's like, He's got a couple million dollars, and you know he. I know he has a couple different houses, but I, I've heard like you know, you, in his like let's say he's recording a video at his house, he's got fireside chat. Yeah, yeah, you know he's got like a chair full of clothes, which is something that I do. You know, uh, you know he's got like <laughs> me, like that messiness is like you don't have to live just because you have the money. You don't have to live extravagantly, and I think some people want to live that way I, I don't know maybe it makes them more comfortable just to know they have that savings you know they don't want to spend it i still have a lot of behaviors that still come from the way that i grew up you know i'm a vegan i don't eat any meat but if i see that my fiance has bought steak or something else in the house and then ends up not eating it because she just forgot about it i get really upset i, I, I get that do not yeah, don't waste it. like to waste anything because just because the way that I grew up, but back to this, but back to this, uh, this guy who had my job before me, I ended up doing a better job than he did. So they put me on for a couple of weeks with this young man instead of him working with the other guy. And then eventually I ended up taking the position full time. Now, granted, I didn't scam my way into that position. I just did a better job than he did. And he pretty much gave it up eventually. But a position like that in which the pay is solid, you didn't need any sort of degree to get, which blew my mind. You know, I went to school and studied special education, but pretty much anybody can walk off the street and get and, and get this job, too. But it almost feels like there's not enough jobs to go around, right? Like, that, that's the problem. You know, like you said, you, you took this guy's job. I don't know. I think that's, that's where you see in this movie, too. They're, they're taking other people's jobs rather than be able to get their own because they're just not available. You know, it comes a point where, like, there's That's not enough very jobs good to go to everybody, whether they can do it or not. You know, so you have people who are going to struggle because there is no other choice. They can't get a job. Now, we end up in this moment where they get the chance to house sit for these rich folks. The They go away, go camping for the youngest son's birthday, and they leave the housekeeper there. Of course, she invites her whole family who are all working there, and they really make the most of it. They're just seeing the way in which they live in this house is it's uh it's beautiful and it's so heartbreaking at the same time right yeah, there's that moment where the son's sitting he's laying on the grass you know and the mom's like why are you laying out there and he just 
he's laying on the grass looking up at the sky. And when when you look at where he lives, he lives like almost in like an alleyway. You know, it's filled with with people in the same financial situation. There's and tons, tall buildings, yeah, apartments all over. People are crammed together. Like he doesn't get this opportunity to just lay in the grass and look at the sky. Like it's just not there for him. It really is. And when you think about this idea of upward mobility and people dreaming and everything, it's like, well, how do you shoot for the sky if you can't even see it? Oof, that's rough. Now, uh, you know, I've been in this situation, too, in which I've gotten to house sit for, for people who I'm not sure they're as rich as this family, but, you know, they do all right. I was taking care of their dogs, and I got to stay in their house for a week while they were gone. And it was just amazing getting to do that. I had a couple of friends over, and I was actually able to have, like, a barbecue like people do. I remember how excited um, you, know, you were. You were like, oh, I got, you know, I'm in this house the whole time. Let's, we can watch movies. We can hang out. Like, I have this space. It, it was like, it was like this huge thing. Yeah, and it was great. I remember having you over and, uh, you know, just kind of getting to put on that costume for a moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and that's exactly what this family does. They drink all the expensive booze. They eat all the expensive food. And they're having a great time. While they're in this in this house, in this living room, the the mother starts making fun of the father, saying, like, oh, like you're saying this is your house, but if they were to walk in right now, you would scatter like a little cockroach. That's what you are, blah, blah, blah. And he gets really upset. He throws a bunch of stuff off the table and grabs the wife by her shirt. And they make it seem like it's kind of a joke, but I don't think it is. Yeah, I don't think it is either. I think he's he probably has always been looked down on his whole life. You know, there's a couple moments with that, like where, where he keeps feeling like people are looking down on him and judging him. And, and you can see the frustration, you know, the, the anger, like inside internally that he's not expressing. And, you know, you, you feel for him in that regard. It, it, it's a tough spot to be in. Well, I do also, because I think he has a lot of internalized uh, angst and, uh, and self-hate. Definitely. Because, and I think it's because of society, right? At the beginning of the movie, his wife turns to him and says, what's your plan? Because it always has to be his plan. Why can't it be her plan? Yeah, he's a, he's a patriarch. He's, he's got you know, to be the one to save the family. Yeah, he's got to be the, the provider. And yet, we see that his plans aren't super awesome. At the beginning, when they're, uh, they're fumigating the neighborhood, he says, leave the doors open. Uh, leave the windows open. The fumigation will kill the cockroaches we have in the house. Yeah, free fumigation until it overtakes the whole house. And they're like, oh, this is horrible. The smell, you know, we should have shut the windows. Yeah, they're poisoning themselves to get free fumigation. Like, that's how desperate they are. That's how desperate he is. And it's something that I, I witnessed growing up, too. I, you know, my father drowned himself in a lot of different, uh, you know, alcohol, substance abuse. And part of that, I think, is his own mental health issues, but also because... You know, how do you have a kid and then you're not even able to get them one present for Christmas? Yeah. How, you know, how much does that weigh on you? And honestly, as a child, it wasn't ever something I held against him. But I think it's something he really held against himself. And he would get very upset. And there were these outlashes of anger because he thought I looked down on him the way that everyone else did. But it was kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, right? Because like he, he would act out at you would put you in these situations. And I, I feel like you remember that. And now reflecting back on it, you're like, he could have handled that so much better. You know, we, I get it was tough, but the way... Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's like, now I do look... You do look down on him because, you know, he didn't handle it with grace. No, not at all. And so so it was, it was 
it was really something else to see that and to see that, you know, their father, for as much as he loves his family, he reacted the way he did because, you know, society can get to be a bit too much. Um, not to Joaquin Phoenix Joker, <laughs> this bad boy. But, uh, but, you know, no matter how much we want to say that we are free thinkers, we do hold a lot of the values of uh, the culture in which we were raised. And, you know, that means the man's got to be the provider. Yeah, that's the stigma, right? And uh, this is another point I made a note where I just said, like, they still had to screw over other working class people to get to where they did. Yeah, they, they have to live with that. I, well, don't don't they? I think they mentioned at one point about the limo driver or you know the car driver. He, they're like, uh, he got a he must have gotten a better job, right? Like he must have gotten another job. And I think like they, they have to convince themselves what they did wasn't wrong. And, you know, it's like nah, he he was well off. Like you know, he has this skill. You know, he has this resume. He'll be fine. We needed it more. I don't know if you were raised with that same mentality, but I know for a fact I was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what my mom would always tell you. know, you got to do what you got to do for you. You know, stop worrying about other people. She would always tell me. Like, I remember, like, when I had my, my, you know, my high school job or, like, even in college, I would, like, buy Christmas presents for people. And sometimes they wouldn't give them back. And, like, it was like, oh, whatever. You know, my mom would be like, stop buying people stuff. Like, stop giving them presents. Like, worry about yourself for once, Ty. You know, worry about yourself. Do the right thing for you. And that was, like, a mentality that I was always raised on. Well, and from what I've seen, it seems to be one that you've you've actively fought against in your own in your own life. Well, thank you. Yes, you know, definitely. <laughs> you know, I think as you get older, you, you see the world a little differently. I mean, I'm not the same person I was five years ago as opposed to ten years ago. I mean, you keep going further and further back. You know, obviously, my my political, my my social standings have all changed. Um, and you know, and, and I, it's opened my eyes a lot more to the world around me, and that's why I think I was able to appreciate this film in a way I probably wouldn't have been able to years ago. Yeah, and that's the whole point of growth and evolution. And I, I live with a with a similar mentality too that the moments in which I have dispensable income are few and far between. But at any of those moments, I won't hesitate to spend that money on somebody else if I can. Absolutely. You're like, hey, I'll take you to dinner or like, you know, I'll get you this thing or like, we'll, we'll, we'll meet up, we'll go to a movie, you know, and it's, it, it's, it doesn't seem big, but it is. It is when you only have a little bit of money and you're willing to spend it on someone that you care about and not just do the selfish thing and be like, you know, forget that. It is. And I mean, I think, that that's something I get I, I get from my mom, too. Because my father, when he had money, he would spend it on himself. Even, like, if we got uh, money donated to us from the local Girl Scout troop for Christmas because we were that family, he would be like, oh, let's get a DVD player, even though, like, I wanted something. I would have been happy with a bunch of action figures. You know what I mean? But he was like, no, let's get a DVD player and let's get all these rated R movies that we both totally want to watch, not just me, right? See, that's where I think where our parents dif- differ. Like, my mom... Uh, my dad was, kind, you know, my my dad didn't really care what he got. So, but my mom, she was very big on, you know, like I'm gonna get stuff for my kids. So anytime she had money, whether it was the right thing or not, she would, you know, buy us video games, uh, movies, toys. But it would always be to the point where like she couldn't afford it. She was not living within her means, so she'd get us all these video games. And the electric bill would come, and it'd be like, oh, I can't afford it. Hey, uh, hey, Todd. Do you think you could um, sell a couple games so we could pay this electric bill? You know, I'm really sorry. I'll rebuy them for you. I, you know, I'll always get it for you. I'll get it back for you. And you know, and and she meant well. She wasn't trying to hurt me, but you know, it was like that. Here you go, and then you take it back away. It's it's almost like I'd rather have not had it in the it's first place. It's almost worse than not having. Yeah, it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and like that's something that has continued through most of my life. You know, and like you you get so used to it. Like I had surgery a couple years ago, and I was gifted a switch. 
um, a Nintendo Switch, and like I played it for the, the two weeks I was home recovering, and then when I was going back to work, she was like, "Hey, uh, I can't like pay my rent. You think I could sell that Switch? I'll, I'll buy another one one day." You know, and it's like she always meant well, but but she would always spend her money not responsibly at all. You know, even more than just treating herself when you have it, she wouldn't even have the money and she'd spend it. You know, that goes into our whole thing of debt, right? Yeah. And credit cards yep. and all this other stuff. We we had very similar upbringings, except instead of it being, oh, well, I have to sell back your PlayStation 2 to pay the bills, my father would sell back my PlayStation 2 to get crack. You know, but <laughs> um, but like you said, would I have rather had it in the first place uh, or would I have rather not had it in the first place or have it and then have it taken away? It's, it, you know, it's it's such a rough spot to be to be put in but all those things shape you they shape you and i think you can see that with the kids in this movie you know like they've been shaped by their parents and like this whole scheme it it's really kind of the kids though that develop it i I think that you even see them coaching the father through certain lines that he's going to deliver you know like he's not smart enough to pull it off on his own so the kids are like hey let's let's rehearse it i'll play this part you're going to say this you know and they're really the ones that develop this whole scheme but, you know, it's the father's plan almost, right? Like, they keep putting it on him, but it's really the whole family. Yeah, and he says later on, which we'll get to, but he says later on, the reason why I never have a plan is because when the plan goes to shit, I'm paraphrasing, when the plan goes to shit, you know, everybody loses their minds. And he goes, but, you know, I have no reason to get upset because I had no plan in the first place. Yeah, it's great. It's a great line. Yeah. So, so we'll get to that in a bit. But so while they're in this house... uh. Who comes to the door and what do they end up finding? So the housekeeper shows up, the one that they got fired. Uh, and she, you know, she knows the house so well. She knows, you know, they have this, uh, you know, a camera on the door and, and she's talking. She's like, oh, you're the new housekeeper, right? Like, I know you're here. You know, um, I just, I left something behind. I left something, you know, in the basement and I need to go get it. And uh, for whatever reason, the the mother the the housekeeper the new housekeeper she decides to let her in she's like uh, I don't know I don't know. they let her in um, and you know th- this new this old housekeeper she doesn't hold anything against her right she's like she's like oh thank you so much but she seems like unhinged like she's definitely like there's something off there and you know yeah she, she's had a rough go of it yeah you don't know what it she's is. definitely struggling and, and you know she rushes into the kitchen and she goes down into the basement and the family's like you know what what is she going what is she doing here what is she here for and so what does she find down there? Uh, so she, well, you know, they decide to follow her down um, and, and figure out what's going on. And they, they see her trying to move, uh, I guess, like a shelf. And it opens up almost like a hidden door. So they follow her down to the basement. It turns out there's a man living underneath the house in this secret trap door. And I guess um, they, they had built this for, like, nuclear fallout or, like, in case, like, the government took over, uh, you know, like North Korea. And I guess the family that lives here doesn't even know it exists. They've, they've kept it hidden. But this housekeeper has been here so long that she knows exactly where it is. And her husband has been living in the basement, basically surviving off of scraps from the rich family for who knows how many years. And that was such an insane twist. That's where I was like, oh. Yeah, I did not see that exactly- coming at all. At, at all. Like, <laughs> like there's, I had so many, like, theories, and I heard, like, little things here and there. I was like, oh, man, it's, like, kind of like a horror movie. What are they going to find that the family's hiding? The rich family isn't hiding anything in this regard. It, it's it's the housekeeper hiding her husband. And it turns out, like, all that, I'm assuming, like, remember when he said all the extra food she would eat? She was, like, sneaking it to the husband, yes. right? She's giving him just enough to survive. I mean, he's basically living in this underground 
area where he has nothing but like a pen and paper. Uh, he has some lights, a toilet, and she sneaks him food. And that's his life, right? Because he's hiding from, I think they said, loan sharks. And that's that's been his his entire existence now is just surviving. And so I want to bring back that point real quick now about living above your means, because you've brought it up a couple times. And I've heard similar sentiments shared from my fiance's family during Thanksgiving. Uh, they thanked God that they were able to live within their means and have the you know, my fiance's father retired. Yeah. We lived, we lived within our means and blah, blah, blah. The patriarch of the rich family, he, he alluded that she was eating too much food, which it turns out she was actually giving to her husband who lived underground in this bunker. And it blows my mind how people can still have that mentality that they want to judge, right? They want to judge, oh, if you're not rich, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. And it comes up with like the, the food stamp uh, thing or SNAP benefits, if you want to call it, uh, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. You'll see on Facebook people say, oh, I saw somebody with food stamps getting a steak in front of me. Like, are you kidding me? I couldn't even get a steak. Why should you get a steak? And that is such an ass backwards way of thinking. Because you're you're like middle class and you're like, oh, I can't afford steak. You shouldn't afford steak. Meanwhile, let's take it back to the cookies. You're not pissed that the 10 cookie guy is the one who's controlling who gets steak. Why don't we all get steak? Well, I think it always comes down to like the 1%, the people in charge are pitting us against each other. You know, they're always doing that. And it always comes down to to us blaming, you know, the same people who are struggling rather than the people who are hoarding all that wealth and all those resources for themselves far more than they need. You know, like, like I don't know what you do with a couple billion dollars. How, you know, like I, I can think of some like extravagant lifestyle choices I can make and I still don't know what the hell I would do with all that money. And yet, To burn it all yeah, out. Yeah, and like the idea that like, I feel like people like in our situation are always like, hey, if I had that money, like, I'd help like this shelter, I'd help, you know, homeless people here i'd like donate to this i donate to that and like you, you think of all the great you could do with it but it seems like that never really gets done with the people who have the money and and, and it winds up us fighting against each other like why why did you get the steak when i couldn't why did why did you get this when i when i couldn't have it and instead of like joining forces and being like hey we both deserve this maybe we should take some of the ex excess that this person has up top and that's exactly what happens in this movie. We see that the two uh, lower class families here end up fighting each other and the wealthy people's world is their battlefield. And it's so beautiful. I didn't mention at any point how beautiful this movie is, it is. the way it's shot. The cinematography is so great. It's, right? it's a gorgeous film. It really is. They Excellent, excellent team behind this. And we see these two families now fighting each other because the former housekeeper wants to blackmail the new family and send it to the rich family while they're gone. And they don't want that. So they're all fighting each other in this beautiful home, you know, up in the uh, they end up up in the living room, just clawing at each other. And it is just it is so tragic. Well, I think it's, a, it's important to note, though, that the old housekeeper, she's she begs the new housekeeper for she's like, listen, I will send you money. If you just let him live here, don't say anything. You can keep my job. I'm willing to send you money every month and like just let him live. Like she's willing to do that. You know, she she doesn't uh -huh. want it yep. until she realizes when the rest of the family fall down the stairs and she recognizes all of them. And I think they, they, they call dad or mom and she puts it all together. They're, they were all in this together and that they took her job from her. That's when the turn comes and she's like, you know, you stole this from me. You know, I was willing to work with you for like just the survival of my husband with the little money I have 
and and you stabbed me right in the back and stole my job. And that's when they start fighting amongst each other. And I love how they bring that gray into a world of otherwise black and white. Absolutely, right? yeah. How, you know, you like you're made to empathize with this family. But if you saw the movie from the original housekeeper's perspective, you probably would hate the main characters of this film. Yeah, you probably would. Absolutely. Because you don't you don't know their story. All you know is that they're a bunch of con artists. Right. And uh, what I, another thing I thought was interesting was the husband who's living in the bunker. Why was he living there in the first place? Loan sharks, right? Yep. Loan sharks. It was because of debt that he was forced into living uh, where he had to live. You know, I thought that this movie was going to be a lot more subtle with the way it uh, it covers class. Just like uh, next week's movie, The Platform, and the one after that, Snowpiercer, I thought it was going to be a little more subtle. Uh, but no, uh, <laughs> they slap you straight upside the head with it. And honestly, I'm okay with that because it's a really good Well, movie. I think the time for subtlety is over. You know, like... You know, you're so fucking right. Like, there's been so many years that we've tried to be subtle. We've tried to talk it through. We've, tried, we've had so many chances to get it right. And now we are at what could arguably be the end of the world. You know, we've been on the precipice of nuclear war, um, a disease raging across the planet and killing people. Uh, you know, like th it's now or never. Climate change, you know, they're saying, what, next couple of years, if we don't do something, it's over. Like the planet around us that we live on for, for all of our resources is dying underneath us. And we're not doing enough to stop it. So I think the time for subtlety is over. It's like, get your fucking act together. You know, like you have to do this. And now I want to go into the next part of the movie where the rich family ends up having to come home last minute. And, um, you know, it becomes this this race for time as an, a twisted Ferris Bueller knockoff in which, wait, not Ferris Bueller. Was it Risky Business? Where he's was Tom Cruise, Risky Business. Yeah, yeah, it's Risky. Where business. they have to like clean up the house last minute. Oh, it's kind of like a both, twisted, right? A twisted Risky Bueller's Day Off scenario <laughs> in which they, well, it's uh, hilarious. They have to clean up the house. It's hilarious. They have, to, they have to clean up the house, hide the original housekeeper and her husband uh, in the basement. The original housekeeper ends up suffering a traumatic brain injury. She ends up trying to save her husband and bite through his duct tape bondage. Uh, and he, she ends up dying from a, from a concussion. It's really terrible. And um, and and through through the whole thing, uh, the the husband who lived in the basement, he's now banging his head against these light switches, which we find out um, aren't automatic. Yeah, we these automatic we, lights we, in the house are being activated by the man in the basement pressing them, right? Like, it's, yes. it's actually my favorite part of the whole film, I think, was this scene. Oh, you're so right, because because originally it was that uh, we thought those lights turned on as the, as the patriarch of the rich family came home as it walked past them, but no. It turns out that the guy who lived in the basement was activating those lights using Morse code to thank him for having this house and unbeknownst to him, letting this other guy live in the bunker. Yeah, and the main, the main father, the poor father, he's, he's kind of like, like, why are you thanking him? You know, and this man in the basement's like, well, I wouldn't be alive without him. And this rich man who doesn't even know of his existence is basically worshiped by, by the man in the basement. And I think that's like, that's what happens in our world all the time. It is. You know, like how many people who are Trump supporters like worship him? 
They're like, you know, he, he cares about me. Like, it's without him, he wouldn't be able to survive. He doesn't even know who you are. Like Thanos, you know? Like, I don't even know who you are. Like, like <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> like, they, have, they have, don't even acknowledge your existence. He's not doing this for you. He doesn't even know about you. And, like, you're, you're grateful for the bare minimum. And that's, but that's, that's exactly it too, right? And you've, you've seen it in countless Facebook threads. So have I, all these, all these people who are not CEOs or millionaires or billionaires who don't want the millionaires and billionaires to be taxed fairly. And they're like, well, they earned all their money. There's no point in giving that money, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, and let me take it back to the cookie analogy, please. When I was talking with that woman, she was like, uh, you know, I said, you're not mad that there's somebody with 10 cookies who gets to decide how many cookies you get. And she's like, well, how how did he get those cookies? And I said, he was born into a family that had 10 cookies. That's how he fucking got them. Or he used slave labor, more or less, in his company to take advantage or, or tax breaks or whatever way they do. Oh, to cookie Amazon. Cookie, yeah, Am- cookie Amazon, exactly. Yeah. You know, like the stimulus package that we're getting. You know, people are so excited about that $1,200. About the bare, the minimum, bare minimum, not even minimum. But like, I have a coworker who really broke this down for me, and you know, I, I agree. You, you don't look at the twelve hundred dollars you're getting. Look at the amount of money that's in this package that's going to these corporations, like the cruise industry, and look at how much they should have given to you. You know, like they say, healthcare. How are we going to pay for healthcare for everyone in this country? Right? They could have paid for it right there. Instead of bailing out all these companies, they could have paid for healthcare for every single person. And now everyone who was employed who's now been let go from their job and lost their health care, they have nothing. Like, how are they going to survive this this virus plaguing the planet? You know, there's like, you need to break down the numbers and look at not what you're getting, but what you should be getting. What, what's not coming to you and going to the people who don't need it. And people just need to be more aware of that. Much like how in the movie, when this guy in the bunker, his wife is dying in front of him, he's now using Morse code with those lights to send out SOSs. His hands are tied, and he's literally banging his head bloody against these buttons so that way someone will see the light and will will know that someone's calling for help. And the only person who even has a chance of seeing this, it's not the mom and father of the rich family. They're, they're getting busy on the couch. They're sleeping or whatever. It's the son who their son, um, who knows Morse code because he's in he's in uh, Cub Scouts or Boy Scouts, and he doesn't even get to finish deciphering the message, which is you know help me please, uh, and you know that's the thing people just want to remain blind to these things, but you you gotta look around and see where people are calling for help. Did you notice also there was like an obsession with America in the film a little bit? Like they, oh, there absolutely was. You're so right. Like they mention America a lot. They talk about you know the Cub Scouts, the Boy Scouts, um, learning English. Like you know, like they just they constantly mention like the American lifestyle and like these rich people are trying to almost like mimic that in some ways. And, and you know, I thought that was really interesting. Um, like I, you know, I I don't know even know what it means exactly. Are they obsessed with you know the capitalism? Is that what they're trying to become? Because you know, America's known as the, the land of dreams coming true. I, I don't know, but it, I thought it was an interesting point they kept making throughout the film. Well, I mean, it really is uh, because now, from what I know, I'm not, I'm no expert in Asiatic studies, but I'll, I'll use my firsthand experience. Um, from what I know of Asian cultures, uh, there's, there's a lot of humility there. And, uh, you know, on the whole, it's not about living in excess like Americans do. And it's not about um, bragging or boasting or anything like that. 
Uh, it's kind of just about, you know, staying humble. Uh, one of the women who raised me throughout my teen years, uh, her parents are Chinese immigrants. She's American born Chinese. And despite the fact that she has a nice house uh, with her husband in a, in a very wealthy area of Long Island, um, you know, I never see her like live a lavish lifestyle. The most money they ever spend is on their children. Uh, but, you know, really, it's like, you know, yeah, we still have the same TV we have from 12 years ago. Why? It works just fine. You know, we still have the same this. We still have the same that. Uh, you know, it. they never seem to be the type of people who want to live in excess, which is the opposite of this. Now, I know China, China and Korea are two completely different places, two very different cultures. Yes. Um, but even when you and I took Japanese in high school, right, everything we learned about the Japanese culture is is about, uh, and, you know, if anyone listening wants to come and prove me wrong, you're more than welcome to. I would love that. Uh, I'll provide contact info in, in, the, in the show notes and at the end of this episode. Um, but it's very much just about, uh, you know, working hard, doing your best, and, uh, you know, and living a humble lifestyle. Which the family in this movie, the the rich family, they don't really seem to embody. And the son has this crazy obsession with Native Americans for some reason. Um, and in order to get approval for his sister to work there, uh, Kevin, to get his sister Jessica to work there, he says that she studied in Illinois. Yeah, like you know, he keeps bringing up American they both places studied in America, because that's right. They both went to college in America. That was the big thing. Exactly, because that's that's what people respect. People res- respect America as the standard for some reason. So yeah, so we get to this this point where we had these these, you know, these uh, warring lower class families that the rich family could be uh, couldn't be less concerned about or even know about. And I want to bring up the smells. Yeah, it's huge. So there's a moment earlier in the film where the young boy who's getting tutored for art. He notices that their driver and their housekeeper smell the same. You know, nobody really thinks anything of it. But at that point, uh, you know, the main family are like, oh, we got to start using different soaps and stuff like that. And they think it's the soaps, but it's really not. It's the place uh, where they live. They live in a basement and they smell kind of like moldy or, or, or stale. And even if they dress up well and they clean up well, they're still going to smell different than everybody else. And it sucks because this isn't something you can help. Uh, one of the day laborer houses I lived in, um, they had a washing machine, but no dryer. So my father would just hang everything that needed to be dried in the room that we lived in. He and I both shared a very small room. I was on a cot and he would just constantly chain smoke in that room. So whenever I went to school, I went smelling like cigarettes. And I remember, well, even earlier in middle school, right? You remember me you probably remember me. I was the smelly kid in school. Yeah, I remember. You, didn't the guidance counselor pull you aside? A guidance, yeah. Uh, our guidance counselor actually made a point to to reach out to me and provide me with deodorant and cologne and tell me that I need to shower more. And it was from a good place because everybody else, the teachers had stepped in. You know, because those are signs of neglect yeah. now that I'm looking back Absolutely. at it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I was being neglected. I didn't realize that. I was also not being raised with proper hygiene. Um, you know, wearing a lot of the same clothes that I had worn already. But this smell that this family has is unmistakable. While they're hiding from the from the rich family, they overhear that the father has a problem with the way his driver smells. And he, he says, like, oh, like, you know, he's nice. He never crosses the line. But that smell 
crosses the line. And they linger uh, on his face, right? On the driver, on the father's face. It's, and you, it breaks he him. Doesn't, he doesn't outwardly react, but you can see, like, internally, like, that's it. Like, like he's just so sick of being judged and looked down upon. And that's, like, the moment where he's just broken inside. And the worst thing also is that the rich guy doesn't even say, like, oh, it's the smell of a basement or it's a moldy smell or whatever. He says it's the smell of people who ride the subway. Yeah, like he's judging everyone who does. You know, they can't, they can't afford to just drive or have their own car or whatever it is. It really is a shame. We'll bring that back toward the climax of the film. It, there's a crazy storm happening that night. And, you know, I mean, the, it's so funny. The, the son of the rich family, he chooses to sleep outside and go camping and have a tent Everyone else is safe in their house from the rain. The main characters of the movie, they they sneak out and go to their uh, neighborhood where they're not safe from the rain. And the entire neighborhood, because it's downhill, is becoming flooded. This is trickle-down theory, right? You know, all the all the rain is trickling from the upper class, except it's not wealth. It's terrible rain, and it's coming down and washing away all the poor people's uh, everything they have. And it's it's flooding it up. We see in the main character's apartment, their, their plumbing is going all out of whack. There's shit shooting out of the toilet. They're trying to grab whatever they can. They try um, to close the window, it, it, hoping that'll stop it. And none of, none of it's obviously working. And they're all so defeated, you know. The, the daughter starts smoking a cigarette, sitting on the exploding toilet. Uh, the son grabs that rock that he had, that big rock, and he's clutching that to him. You know, the father's, like, looking around trying to figure out a, a plan to stop it, and there is none. And I think they wound up sleeping, like, in a shelter that night. Yes, and that rock is the is the dream of wealth, yep. right? Uh, we, he gets it earlier on in the film from his, from his college friend, and he says, this is a good luck charm. It'll bring wealth. It'll bring good fortune. So the only thing he grabs is that rock. Like, after all of this, he still has that dream, he's right? He's clutching to that hope. Even though it's heavy. It's such a heavy burden to hold this dream of a better life. And so, yeah, they end up sleeping in a, in a, in a school gym that night. And that's where the father, uh, his father, Kevin's father says, um, he goes, you know, do you think all these people planned on sleeping in a gym tonight? No. He goes, that's why I don't have a plan because, you know, it's always going to go bad. And that kind of nihilism brings me back to my own upbringing and my own father because he, I was talking to him about class. Uh, you know, I learned it in elementary school. So there's middle class and there's lower class and there's upper class and there's middle upper class. And he said, son, there are two types of people in this world. There are rich people and there are poor people. You and I are poor people. Wow. You know, he's really not wrong. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll give that to him because, you know, I've seen middle class people and I've seen them live comfortably. But once again, within their means, right? Yeah. Within their means. And that on any given day. If you're a, let's say you're a five cookie person, on any given day, you were just maybe a month, a bad month, a bad week away from being a one cookie person. But no matter how hard you work or how many cookies you save, you will never be that 10 cookie person. That's why you should empathize with those one cookie people. Because now, especially with Corona and everything happening, we're finding that it doesn't take much to make us one cookie people. You're a lot, you're a lot closer with those people than you are with, with the 10 cookie people, right? Exactly. And we're finding out those 10 cookie people really don't give a fuck about the one cookie people. So the next day, they decide to put together this surprise birthday party for the youngest son. And... At that moment, the the rich family, they just go and 
call the the rest of the family that's been working for them. They you know they call the driver, the father. They call um the art teacher who is actually the the sister of the main character. Uh, they even call him because turns out there's a love thing going on with him and that high school girl he's tutoring, which I'm not getting into that here. I thought it was a little weird, but whatever. It's not the point of the movie. And um, and there was some interesting stuff that happened while they were setting up the party. The first thing is that, that the family we focused on in this film was blown away by the fact that the uh, rich family could just put together a last-minute party. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty extravagant party. Uh, they had they had like a Native American theme going on, right? That they were gonna dress up like Native yeah. Americans and, and do this whole like surprise moment. Um, it, yeah, it was it was definitely kind of weird, but uh, you know, pretty impressive for the rich family to do, and and you know, inviting all these people that you normally wouldn't bring in. Yeah, and I saw this very interesting. Uh, there were a couple of interesting things that happened. The first was that uh, when they were. Uh, driving in the car, the the wife of the rich family and the father, who's their driver, uh, there was all this, all this um, undertone about that smell again, right? That poor person smell, that that musk, that subway rider smell, and the guy noticed that the mother of the rich family she opened her window while they were in the car together. And he noticed that she did that. And that, you could see it on his face again. But while she was doing that, the crazy part was she had her feet up on the on the passenger seat. And they were her bare feet right next to the to the driver. Yeah, but they were clean and rich feet. Yeah, exactly, right? It's, it's like, oh, well, you can put up with my smell, but I don't like your smell. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of entitlement to the rich family that we see time and time again. Uh, and, and definitely that theme of the smell of... You know, a poor person, a person of lower class. Yeah. And and going back to that smell real quick, the first person to notice it, as we mentioned before, was the child of this rich family. And there's some interesting stuff going on with this kid. He was the one who was in uh, Cub Scouts, and he was the one who noticed the Morse code of the guy living in the basement trying to signal him. And there's a recurring theme in all three of the movies we're going to be covering that it seems to be up to the children to save things. It happens in Platform, and it happens in Snowpiercer. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think there was some similarities between the rich child and Kevin, because I think Kevin had also been a Cub Scout, or had or had studied Cub Scouts. Like, he apparently knew Morse code as well. Oh, that's right. right. There, there were, yeah, there like you're right. Connections and that there. comes back at the end. That's very true. And now, speaking of Kevin, he has this interesting moment, because he manages to get invited to the party, too, because... The, his his tutor his English student has a crush on him, which I think is because for the first time someone doesn't know his backstory, and they don't judge him for it because he has like this fake college degree. He seems like this smart older college kid, whereas you know instead of being like the loser who lives at home with his family and doesn't have like a degree or a job or anything like that, I think that's a part of why that romance blooms. That's a very good point. She kind of just sees him for how he presents, which is as a nice guy, you know, a genuine dude. Yeah, a smart, nice guy. Yeah, definitely. Now, he has this awesome moment where uh, it's time to go down to the party and see how everything's going, and he says, do I fit in here? And I can't tell you how many times uh, this is something that I've felt in real life. And I'm sure you have too, just coming from humble beginnings. And as you get older, you meet such a diverse group of people. You meet 
uh, people who are of different social uh, socioeconomic status than you. And you may go to one of their parties or something and you may wonder like, wow, uh, what the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. I've never been here. I don't even know how to act here in front of all these people. Yeah, there's there's definitely a weird feeling. You know, you, you think you can fit in, you can try to fit in. But in the back of your mind, you know, this isn't really like your place. Uh, and whether, you know, that's just you defeating yourself or it's because other people might judge you. There's definitely a feeling that, hey, I'm not one of these people. And I think throughout the film, Kevin, he keeps dreaming of a life that's not his own and thinking he can make it his own. You know, he, he feels like he can fit in. But but at this point, he's he started to lose hope and, and feels like, you know, what am I doing? Like, why am I here? Yeah, I mean, he still has that good luck rock, which comes into play a little bit later on. And as the party progresses, like you mentioned, there's this whole Native American theme that uh, the patriarch of the rich family, he gets the driver in on it. And and they both dress up in these Native American headdresses. And they're like, all right, we're going to uh, do this whole act. And uh, we're going to attack the the girl carrying the cake. And my son is going to come and save her. And and he's the good Indian. Uh, That's what they said. Um, and, And it just seemed like this totally humiliating moment for for the father we follow throughout this film oh it definitely is you can tell there's like a, a power moment there too you know you can see it in his face that he wants no part of this and i think the father the rich father even mentions like oh i know this is not something normally you would do but don't worry I, you know i'll pay you extra like i'll make it worth your time to to do this humiliating thing with me that you want no part and of that's the whole thing and it brings it back to what we were talking about earlier when i said like when i was working for that dj company over the summer like there was just a lot of ridiculous stuff that i had to do in order to to get that money and it's like, you know, to what lengths do you go or what lengths should you go to to get a paycheck when you're the type of person who can't really say no? Yeah, like where do you lose your, your dignity doing this and, and trying to trying to hustle and make a living? Exactly. So you might remember this and you're, uh, I can tell a story, but I feel like you tell a really good story. So what happens next? <laughs> the huge uh, turn I'm well, talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So while this birthday party is going on, Kevin has decided, I, I think earlier in the film, he tells the father that he's he's going to take care of things, right? That he's going he's gonna to make sure that everything's okay. So he decides that he's going to go down into the basement with his lucky rock. And he's going to insinuate that he's going to finish off the people living down there. The former house, so there's no yeah, evidence. the former housekeeper and her husband. And her husband, yep, the the parasite, more more or less. So he he goes down there, he sneaks down there while the party's going on, and he drops the rock really awkwardly, and he's waiting for that moment for someone to pop out, and nothing happens. So he goes down there, and he goes to get the rock, and he realizes that the former housekeeper is just laying there, and she's laying on her side, and she she's just not moving. So you know he walks up to her, and he's checking on her. And from behind him, the housekeeper's husband has the rock and just goes after Kevin and is trying to kill him with it. And Kevin, you know, gets out of the way. He gets grabbed around the neck, I think, by like a, I don't know, like some he sort of like metal grabber. He put like a wire together, used. like something you would Yeah, use something like, like he's, he's trying to kill Kevin. And Kevin's like, just keeps getting out of the way. Now he's running up the stairs. He's dragging this metal wire behind him. He gets to the very top. 
and I, I guess the, the the housekeeper's husband grabs the wire and trips him and pulls him down, and he just falls right out, right at, like right in the right above the hidden entrance, and he's laying there, and the man just starts bashing his head in with the rock, and it's 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 pretty brutal, like. You know, uh, he, he hits him, I think, just once, and there's just a, a gush of blood. And then I think he hits him a second time, and Kevin's just laying there bleeding out. And the man's obviously unhinged. He's lost his wife. You know, his face is all bloody and disgusting. I mean, he has lost everything. I think he just wants revenge at this point. What a what a visual, right? That Kevin, he oh, is yeah. the dream of upward mobility. Like, that's what he has. He has so much... Uh, so much spunk and so much desire and and uh, and ambition. And this is such a great moment to see him kind of climbing those stairs up out of the basement and only to be stopped and stopped short of of his his metaphorical dream. In this case, it's to live, but I think it was meant that way. And then to get crushed by the rock, which is his own. Uh, that ambition, right? That hope for a better life. Yeah, his own hopes that he's been clutching to this whole time. Out of everything in the in the in the house that they could have taken when it was flooded out, he took that rock. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's beautiful and tragic and brutal. You know, I've he- I've heard some people call this part of the movie kind of gruesome and and very disgusting. Um, you know, so it, it's definitely not for uh, for people who are afraid of blood, but. Um, so at this point, the the former housekeeper's husband heads upstairs, and he grabs a knife from the kitchen, and he goes outside. Unnoticed, completely and, unnoticed. Yeah, he no one noticed. And there's a ton of people here. I mean, all the all the friends of this family, they're all here. They're all gathered. The cake's coming out, and uh, and Kevin's sister is actually carrying the cake. And she's going to be, you know, attacked by the the bad Native Americans, which are, you know, the two yeah. father figures. Um, and they're getting ready to sing, and it's a, this big joyous moment. And through the crowd, you know, comes the housekeeper's husband clutching this knife, and he he runs straight up to her, and he just stabs her right in the chest. I think right near the heart, yeah. right? Yeah, it was right. It was right near I mean, her it's, heart. Yeah, it's it's brutal. It's bloody. You know, he, he said everyone's, you know, kind of shocked for a moment, and then. You know, they start panicking. Um, and then I think at this point, the, the mother, right? The mother sees what the happened. The housekeeper mother he, or the rich mother? I'm trying to remember. The, the housekeeper, housekeeper mother. mother. Okay. I think, yeah, I think and I think now at this point, the the former housekeeper's husband attacks her, right? And I think he's, like, trying to slash at her, and she just keeps, like, dodging, getting yeah, out of the I way. I mean, she is a former uh, athlete, he, as they, they touch on in the film. She's ready to take this guy yeah. to town, man. Just briefly, you know, and meanwhile, her daughter's bleeding to death on, on the ground next to this fallen cake, I, you know, and and uh, the two father figures are like, oh, what's going on here? Um, and, and now, like, so basically this man is is grappling with the mother and, and like, he's slashing at her. Uh, and then the rich father, you know, he he rushes forward and his son actually, I think, passes out, right? He, he has just, a, like, passes yeah, he out has a moment. seizure from something we completely uh, glossed over. <laughs> we didn't even talk about it. <laughs> Earlier in the film, when he was younger, he saw the housekeeper's husband come up from the basement, thought it was a ghost, lost his shit, and had a seizure. So he sees this guy again. Seizure happens. They need to get this kid to a hospital. They start rushing out of the backyard. Right, yeah. This is the traumatic moment this kid had growing up. So the, the rich father, his... His only worry is, is 
you know, getting his kid to the hospital. He doesn't care about the woman bleeding to death. He doesn't care about the housekeeper being attacked. Doesn't even try to help her. You know, he turns to the driver and he's like, come on, like, you know, we got to go and get the car. And obviously the driver, his daughter has just been stabbed, right? This is this is the poor yeah. family. And, and, you know, he's distraught. He's holding her. She's bleeding to death. And she's like, oh, it hurts, dad, you know? Try and I to- think the rich guy just says, throw me the keys at this point. Like, he'll settle for <laughs> he just does. driving he- himself. And uh, and so when the poor should we just say rich father and poor father? Uh, <laughs> so when the poor father throws the keys, uh, I think they get caught under his wife or something, right? Well, it's at that moment that the two grappling figures kind of like walk back into frame, and the keys get stuck like underneath them fighting. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think. I think he's like so the the parasite man the the former housekeeper's husband he's like slashing at the wife and he gets her a few times nothing too serious and she grabs a skewer right oh, of, yeah. of meat or or food and and stabs him right through the side with it um, I, I don't know if he instantly dies but it, it's you know it's yeah. pretty brutal and definitely and I, it definitely takes him out for and the I count. think he just falls on her because they both end up on top of the keys the car yeah. keys yep. and so here's where the the rich father he decides to lift those bodies up oh, what a moment and he decides to grab yeah. the keys for himself and when he does despite all the panic all the trauma all the violence and and chaos and the cacophony he holds his nose because of the smell of his <laughs> own housekeeper but as he grabs the keys yeah it's it's such a degrading moment among these this horribly brutal scene and I think it's at that point that the poor father, the father of the family that you know we were following, he just snaps. It's, he's just had enough. So he basically picks up the knife uh, from the former housekeeper's uh, husband was using. He picks it up. He rushes forward and he stabs the rich, the rich man right, right in the chest. Right. Yep. Just he just yeah, he just kills, he him, kills him right him, there. He, you know he's had enough. Because like what a fucked up moment that like at this point you'd think everyone's being affected equally, right? Like everyone is a victim of of this this uh this terrible moment this this you know violence and yet he still distinguishes himself from his housekeeper by grabbing his nose uh uh-uh. uh yeah, it's this horrible tragedy he doesn't care about about anything else you know but yeah, i mean it's brutal i think the the rich uh woman passes out now at this point too and what i love about this part is you know the the poor daughter is bleeding to death um all these bodies are are on the lawn and the poor father, what does he do? He runs away like a cockroach. Oh, just like his wife said he would. Yeah, he just he just takes off. He just disappears. Right? He leaves the carnage as is, doesn't he doesn't try to help anybody. He just he just runs away. And um we also find that the the English student uh, that Kevin was tutoring, of all people, there's some hope because she grabs Kevin. Um, she yeah. grabs his body, which she shouldn't be able to live, and is trying to get the hell out of there. Like it's because of her that that he ends up alive at the end of this film, probably. Yeah, I mean, after this scene, we see Kevin uh, in the hospital, and he's just had brain mm-hmm. surgery, and uh, he's being interviewed by a detective, and he just keeps laughing, and the detective's like, you know, why, why is this guy laughing? And the nurse or doctor tells him. That it's because when most you know, a lot of people have brain surgery, you know, weird things happen with with their their head, their brain, and he just can't control his laughter. So he's being interviewed about this this horrible situation that occurred, and he just keeps laughing, right? And then uh, they move forward. You see him and his mother in court. 
Um, and I think they actually get off with a pretty light sentence. Yeah, they do. I think it was like probation or something. But like, yeah, it was like yeah, probation of for documents and, and identity theft something or something. I don't know lines, something like yeah. that, right? Uh, it turns out that his sister has passed away from being stabbed. Um, she is dead. The father is missing. And, the, I mean, their life is in ruins. It's in shambles now, right? Like they're basically starting from the bottom, bottom. They're even even worse place than when they began. Yeah, it really, it really is rough. And um, so we see uh, Kevin, he finds out his sister had passed away. And it's just him and his mom. They don't know where his father is. I think he, he starts saying that, uh, the, the police keep following them, right? They want it, They think they that he knows where his father is, but he doesn't. He really has no idea where he is. Um, they have not heard from the father since the, that terrible day. The police keep following. There's actually like a whole area sequence where the cops are like falling down the street, like trying to follow <laughs> him, and like he knows they're he knows they're coming. He has nothing to hide. Yeah. So I think he starts going for walks, right? Yeah, and he ends up uh, going to the like a a, a, a mountain that overlooks the house where he used to tutor, where his whole family ended up working for this rich family. Like, like, like a hill, right? Because he's got a pretty good view of the house. I'd say like like a large hill, right? Yeah. As Obi-Wan would say, he has the high ground. And with <laughs> this high ground, does. he's uh, spying on the new family that that purchased that house. And, and while Kevin's spying on them, he sees those lights that can only be activated from the basement. He sees them start blinking. Yeah, so he's he begins to I think he's like riding the subway or a train, and he, he's jotting down like the Morse code. And he's trying to decipher it, right? And he finds out that it's this long letter from his father, who is now living in the basement. His father has become the parasite. Yeah, he's become you know the father. He was he was looked down on by the rich man, and he kind of looked down on the housekeeper's husband a little bit. Yeah, right. And now he's become that man. Like, he was just one step away from falling into that life, and now he's there. And there's this beautiful sequence where you go back to the birthday party, and you see the father running away, and he's, he goes through the side exit, and he realizes he has nowhere to run, so he ducks back in through the garage, and he goes down into the basement and hides himself there. And he talks about how he, you know, in this Morse code message, and he talks about how uh, you know, he's he's always one step away from getting caught. He's sneaking up to get food. He takes the bare minimum. He doesn't ever want to be found out. You know, he has, he has nothing left. This is all he can do is just hide here and live. And so Kevin writes in this letter back. And and uh, and you see this awesome montage as Kevin speaking uh, what, what his letter is saying. You see him accomplishing everything. He's like, you know what? I'm going to get money and I'm not going to con it. I'm not going to steal it. I'm going to earn it the right way. And I'm going to get this money, and I'm going to buy that house. And that's how we're going to get you, Dad. I'm going to buy that house for me and Mom, and we're going to see you. And and you see, when they finally do get the house, the father, miraculously growing no facial hair, comes out of the basement. <laughs> <laughs> he comes out of the basement, sees Kevin, sees his family, and they embrace in this amazing hug as Kevin realizes that capitalism does work and you just have to work really yeah. hard. It's so beautiful and gorgeous. You know, they're in the, I think they're in the backyard, him and his mother, and Kevin's, he's dressed in, like, really fancy his clothes. His haircut's different. He's got a new haircut. Like, he looks like like the perfect guy, you know? And, and his mother looks happy. They're walking around that garden. Um where the housekeeper's been buried. We, we didn't mention yeah. that. But, uh, and when the father father comes up the stairs and he sees them there, it's just it's such a beautiful, beautiful scene. And then 
And then, just as you think this really happened, it goes back to Kevin with his brain injury and writing this letter. And there's a sobering moment where you kind of realize, I mean, my interpretation is that he probably will never be able to actually accomplish this. You know, it's another one of the dreams that he hopes for, that many people hope for, that they're gonna they're gonna make that money, they're gonna be rich and successful and have the life they want, you know, and he's back. He's back right where he is in real life, where he's never going to accomplish no, especially, that. Especially, like, you thought it was bad before, when he didn't have any money or any college education. Now he has a brain injury, and he has, and a, and record. He has a record. Like, there's no hope at all. Yet he still writes this letter thinking, one day. It's, it's sad, man. You know, you think about how many people have that dream, you know, and how many people fall into it and will never, ever accomplish that. It's, it's really heartbreaking. And I think it's real. It's very real. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, if he could have earned all that money and followed his dream, that's what he would have done from the start. Yeah. But he didn't have the opportunities. He wasn't, you know, a lot of people don't get those chances. Maybe if he'd had some more money, if he'd been given the chance to go to school and, and actually accomplish what he wanted, yeah, he very well could have lived that life. And a lot of people would also say, well, if his parents had worked harder, then he would have been put in a better position for that. But you know his father is one of the hardest working people ever. He's had so many jobs at this point, and they just end up going bust or going out of business for whatever reason. Yeah, life's, life's just been hard on them. I'm wondering if there was a subplot where his mother, uh, like, went to school for an athletic scholarship or something like that. Yeah, she, maybe. She was maybe, maybe the director had had some backstory for them beyond what we saw. Yeah, but... he did put that in there for a reason. But, um, but yeah, so that... I think he wanted you to see that they're all, like, they're not useless people. They are smart, talented people. They are people that have valuable life skills, but they'll never get the chance to use them. That's a that's a really good point. I really like that. And uh, just like I really like this film, uh, it did break my heart because once again, I thought it was going to be a much different film than it was. Um, yeah, it takes a, a very dramatic nope. turn. Uh, like I said, uh, maybe it's just me because I'm not super cultured, but if a Korean film crosses my path, it's most likely because it's a fucked up film. Um <laughs> But, I, you know, for such a fucked up film, I think it really, um, it spoke to a lot of people. I mean, this this movie, <laughs> it, it, so it won Best Picture, right, at the yeah. Academy Awards. It won Best Original Screenplay, uh, Best Director, and Best International Film, which wow. is huge. Those, those are four huge awards. Um, it won the top honor at the Cannes Film Festival. It won the Golden Globe for Best Picture. The BAFTA for Best Original Screenplay, Ooh. BAFTA for Best Film Not in English Language. Um, it got the SAG Outstanding Performance by a Cast in the Motion Picture. I mean, it, the the awards go on and on and on. Those some of the and they were amazing ones, performances but, I mean, too, by the way. They were. I mean, they ever everyone did such a Absolutely. good job in this film. I mean, you really believed it. And I mean, it was made on a pretty modest budget. It was about eleven million dollars. Get out of here, really? Two, yeah, eleven million dollars. And it grossed over two hundred and sixty-six million dollars. That's incredible. Worldwide. Yeah, which is it's fantastic, you know, because you want to see a film like this succeed. Um, I know when it first was released here in theaters, uh, it did not do very well. I think it actually made under a million dollars, but after um, I think after the award ceremonies and people, it started to really get people's attention. They re-released it, 
and it did really, really well the second time around, and really well overseas, all over the world. Um, you know, ma- making m- much more than what it spent back, and then some. So, you know, those are the kind of things you want to see because you want people to be able to make these kind of films. Uh, and he, he's obviously a very talented director and writer, so I am very excited to see what he comes out with next. As am I. Uh, I'm gonna probably go through his IMDb and see how many of his films I can watch from this point. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there, there's not that many directors. I feel like. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that, that that talk about social commentary anymore. You know, it was a big reason that I got into films with George Romero, you know, because he was he boldly put that stuff in his films. And, and there's a lot of great directors that do it. Uh, and so it's nice to see somebody, you know, in the mainstream right now, really getting people's attention with this kind of work. Do you have uh, any recommendations of anything that you've been enjoying uh, during this this interesting time? Anything you've been watching or listening to? Honestly, I've been trying to escape all this class warfare stuff. Obviously, I watched Parasite. I had to see it. Like I was dying to see it. But, um, you know, things are really depressing right now. Uh, I did see Jojo Rabbit, which I highly recommend. It's another fantastic film. Um, I've heard nothing but yeah, good things. Yeah, I'm so, watch you know. It. I'll, I'll do it. it. Yeah, it's great. There's some really good movies out there. A lot on my list. I'm just trying to watch movies and play some video games and, and keep my mind off the, uh, the horrible world that we're living in. Uh, and, of course, trying to support my man Bernie Sanders as much Preach. as I can, uh, share, sharing some information amongst my social media, you know, trying to get involved a little bit with his campaign. He's got a lot of uh, virtual town halls and stuff oh, going awesome. on. Um, so if people are, you know, interested in, in change and wanting to, you know, have a better future, um, I highly recommend you check out Bernie Sanders' website. I think it's like berniesanders.com or something like that. So it <laughs> should be pretty easy to find. Uh, and, and just, you know, take a look at his plans. And, and listen, if your question is how can he pay for the things he's talking about, we just dropped a couple trillion dollars on Wall Street and a terrible uh, bailout plan. So um, I rest yeah, my case absolutely. there. Absolutely. I like that. You know, I mean, we really don't try to get too political on this podcast, but uh, <laughs> except it's in the fucking name. Um, but yeah, th- thanks so much for coming on. It was awesome to have you on this. I'm really looking forward to discussing the other two films with you. Uh, so if you all want to be prepared for next week, please watch The Platform on Netflix if you can. It is an awesome film. Uh, you can watch it in Spanish or in English. And, uh, and that's what we'll be covering. And uh, I personally, I just binge watched The Good Place on Netflix, which is great. Uh, it's very, it's so well written. I think everybody who is on the cast and production team are uh, not monsters, which is is, is really <laughs> awesome. I've heard it's a very healthy, That's cool. uh, healthy place to work on that show, and it does. It's it's, it's a good so place, fu- exactly. And it's so funny, and then it gets so real. But keeps its humor. It's it's really awesome. I've been doing that, and of course, uh, listening to my podcasts. I think this is the first time I'm going to give a shout out to it because uh, I'm stealing one of their bits. Uh, it's going to be the Daily Zeitgeist. It's an iHeartRadio podcast. Uh, it comes out every single day. They're much more committed than I am to making their podcast, and uh, and it is it is really <laughs> awesome. It's a great mix of uh, of social and political issues, but also comedy. The hosts do a pretty good job of keeping it light. At the end of every episode. They uh, have a song that they write out on, and uh, now that I know you can do that legally just by saying the name of the song and the artist, I'm going to do that for every one of my podcasts. Yeah. All right, so uh, so Ty, thanks so much. It's been awesome having you. Uh, looking forward to the next one that we do together, which is going to be The Platform. Me too. I had a ton of fun. I uh, really, really like talking about this stuff. I think it's important, and uh, I appreciate being on. And.
And uh, one more time, you can find us on Twitter at PolitipopPod. You can email us at politipopcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on our website at politipoppodcast.wordpress.com. We're going to be writing out on a Slipknot song known as Pulse of the Maggots. I think it is super relevant now, and it's not just an awesome beat to bang your head to. It is both of those things. In the meantime, keep watching stuff, keep reading stuff, keep learning, and read between the lines. I'll see you next time. Take care. Oh no, they, uh, no they Germany, were that's right. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so they came They're they're white. They're they're definitely not they're not yeah. Asian. They're, I think they're that was racist family. of me. They, they eventually said They're a white family, they're American. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah, so, so yeah, so this German family moves in and while Kevin Not really, man. I've been going back to the well watching watching some old stuff and watching some uh, some Yu Yu Hakusho. Of show course, yes. Hard hitting. Which <laughs> Class struggle right there, you know. Yusuke's got a got a tough life. His mom's not the best, you know. So, <laughs> and you gotta you go. go to demon um, hunting to pay those bills. Hello, my name is Michael Carbuccia. I'm a fucking cunt. <laughs>